You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Lisa Mateo. This week, a conversation with Lisa Jarvis about Moderna's tough road ahead. Claudia Sam with a look at why so many Americans are downbeat about the economy. An insight into what the future holds for the farming industry with Laura Williams. But first, Justin Fox joins us with a look into the homicide rate of black Americans. The title of your opinion piece, Where It's Most Dangerous to Be Black in America, that itself is eye-catching. But the stat that you give right off the top really hits home. I'm going to say it for you. Black Americans make up 13.6 percent of the U.S. population in 2022 and 54.1 percent of the victims of murder and homicide. Now, you check with data from the CDC. Explain what this works out to as far as homicide rate for black Americans and just the scope of it. I mean, the homicide rate for black Americans in 2022, and this data isn't totally, completely final yet, but I've been checking it for a while and it isn't changing much. And this is all on the CDC's online wonder database that anybody can look into, although it takes a while to get up to speed on it, which I did, sadly, early in the pandemic. Anyway, the homicide rate for black Americans last year was about 30 per 100,000 people. For everybody else in the country, it was about four. And four is still pretty high by the standards of like other rich countries in Europe and East Asia and, and such. I mean, in Japan, it's just 0.2 per 100,000. Mm. But it's you know, 30 per 100,000 is similar to even higher than in places like Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, that are kind of known as being very, very violent. And it's also a lot higher than the rate was before the pandemic and especially around 2015, 2014. Right. And you mentioned when the homicide rate goes up, black Americans suffer disproportionately. Yeah. Like when you look at the increase in homicides, especially from 2019 to 2020. I mean, as we said, a little over half of all homicide victims in the U.S. are black, but the increase um, was about 65% black Americans. So it's clear that, yeah, when there's a wave of violence, it's, it's black Americans who suffer the most. And when that wave recedes, as this one is now doing, um, it's you know, down a bit in the CDC data for last year and in crime statistics from New York, Los Angeles, everywhere else, it's down a lot so far this year, too. So at least that news is good. But wow, it went up a lot, um, especially during the pandemic. But there'd also been something of a rise in a couple, the couple of years before then. All right. And you mentioned when uh, the racial definitions have changed recently. You talk about that as more government agencies classify Americans as multiracial. So how does this change things when you were going through the article? I mean, it doesn't change it much. It just makes it a pain because basically in the, all the data from uh, 2018 and earlier, the CDC uses the old racial definitions, which are basically sort of, are, are you mostly black? Are you mostly white? Whatever. With the 2020 census, and they started doing it before then, they're much more open to no, I'm multiple. I'm I'm lots of things, which I think in a lot of ways is great and very healthy development for our country. But it's it's a pain when you're trying to look at, you know, developments in long run statistics by race. 
it doesn't make that big a difference on a national level in these numbers. The more recent statistics were who are for people who identify as black or African American only, but you know, in the census and all the people who identify themselves as more than one race are sort of in this no man's land. It couldn't get great per capita statistics on them. With some of the cities I looked at, it made a difference, but not enough to really change the trajectory in a big way. Yeah, and that's what I want to get to, some of those numbers. So the black homicide rates, far lower in some parts of the country than in other parts. And you really broke down that 2022 rates for the country's most populous metro areas. So talk about who topped the list, who came out at the bottom. What did you find out? This is among the 30 largest metro areas. And the the kind of interesting thing with the CDC data is you can basically ask it to give really detailed stuff, like how many people were murdered in some small county in Texas in 2013. And for that, it won't tell you because it basically won't disclose data if there are fewer than 10 people involved because the idea is that that would make it possible. And it doesn't really, with murder, it doesn't really matter, but with other causes of death, it would invade people's privacy. It's really helpful to do big groups. The CDC used to publish a lot of this data by metropolitan area. You can just click, I want everything sorted by metropolitan area. For some reason, they don't do that anymore. But you can go in and pick all the counties in a metropolitan area and ask it to combine, all of which is a long excuse for why I only did 30 metropolitan areas rather than anymore. (laughs) Anyway, so these 30 biggest metropolitan areas, the the worst um, is St. Louis, um, which is a bunch of counties in both Missouri and across the river in Illinois. And Baltimore is not far behind. And then the best are basically New York, San Diego, and best of all, Boston. And that's for overall homicide rate. Now, did anything surprise you about the results that came out from that? I mean, I, I, this kind of started, I, I wrote a piece a year ago looking at CDC data just to, it was sort of at the moment when crime in New York was really top of mind. And lots of people around the world seemed to, in the country seemed to think New York was just such a dangerous place. And I looked at homicides. It's not bad in New York. You throw in accident data, and New York is like one of the safest places in the country. So that didn't surprise me, but it's still kind of funny to see it down at the bottom here. It was kind of remarkable how low Boston is. I mean, it's not that surprising when you think about it, Mm -hmm. but it's like another big step lower than um, in New York or it, it's, it's only two per 100,000 overall. And the nationwide for everybody is something like 5.7, 5.8. So it's a lot lower in Boston. In New York, it's um, 3.7 per 100,000. Okay. St. Louis, the overall homicide rate is 15.7 per 100,000. Wow. But then you break it down by race, and it's just, it's an even bigger gap in some cases. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that gap. Um, and you also found some some regional patterns to this data, too. Yeah. I mean, the worst places, at least in this 30 biggest metro area list, in both the worst places in overall homicide rates are pretty much all kind of Rust Belt or Rust. I, I guess Baltimore is not officially in the Rust Belt, but it kind of feels like it. And, you know, St. Louis, Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit. And then Atlanta's pretty high, too. When you break it down, what you get is really this these old St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia stand out, and then this bizarre newcomer, Portland, Oregon, um, which wouldn't have been high on this list at all um, five years ago, but is just awfully high now. It's more dangerous to be black in Portland last year than in Detroit or Baltimore or Chicago. 
That's crazy. Let's talk about those incidents of police violence that go viral, a spark protest. We've seen it. They can tend to be followed by local increases in violent crime. So talk more about how this affects those homicide rates. Obviously, police violence, I mean, sometimes it's inevitable. A lot of times it's not. People have lots of reasons to protest against it and be mad about it and try to fix it. At the same time, it's, you know, black people killed by police officers it's around 250 a year, as opposed to more than 13,000 black victims of homicide overall. And it's so it's pretty clear that, you know, if, if the focus is that black lives matter, and it should be, that um, it's getting down crime rates is the most important thing. And, and having effective policing, which generally means police departments that aren't abusing their citizens, but at the same time means police departments that are arresting people and fighting crime is really important to save people's lives. Now, Justin, I think it's important to note that you did all of this intense, intense research for this story, and you are not black. What motivated you to to take this on? I mean, the initial thing is just, I, I as, as mentioned, I got familiar with these CDC databases early in the pandemic and was like looking at all the things that were more or less likely to kill you than COVID. And one of the things that starts coming out when you're looking at younger people is that, you know, it's mostly not diseases that kill young people. It's it's accidents, it's suicides, it's homicides. And then you start sorting it by race and especially by gender. And it, like it's for black young men, it's homicide is the number one cause of death most of the time. It might not be in 2022 for the awful reason that the opioid epidemic is is sort of moved from rural areas where that are mostly white into cities. Um, and so, I mean, that's the initial thing. It's just this is this thing that I don't think gets enough attention. And then I, I do think it was this frustration with especially the mainstream media coverage of um, police violence and the Black Lives Matter movement that I just think has underplayed this sort of underlying reality that the biggest threat to young men's black lives is not police, it's violence in their own communities. And police can make that better, can make that worse, but it's just, it just feels like the focus of the discussion has been way too much in one place. And I think it's mainly because the mainstream media is full of white journalists like me who feel uncomfortable writing about these things. So I don't know. I mean, I don't have good answers here, good explanations of why this problem persists. But it it does seem really important to note that it it was much better a few years ago, and it's much better in some cities than others. This is not some inevitable thing. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox. Coming up, we'll speak with columnist Lisa Jarvis about Moderna and vaccine development. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Lisa Mateo. Let's bring in opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis to get her thoughts on where Moderna stands among the competition as it expands into other infectious diseases. 
Moderna has had a tough road ahead of it. That's the feel from this opinion piece that you put together. Now, you mentioned that the company's biggest challenge has shifted from proving that its mRNA vaccines and products work to convincing the world that they offer something better than what's out there. I mean, how tough is that a sell? I think it's definitely a tougher sell than when they had this captive market with just, you know, a vaccine from them and from Pfizer and everyone was feeling very motivated to take it. Um, but the products that they have coming up next and, you know, I'll just say it's impressive. They have four things that are likely to be on the market by 2025. You know, if we're talking about a different biotech company, that might feel really impressive. Um, but all of those things um, already have existing products. And so, so far, what they've shown is what they can offer is something that's about the same as what's already out there. So they'll have an RSV vaccine, a flu vaccine, a vaccine that combines COVID and flu, to, you know, to note that is novel. And then they'll have a next generation COVID um, vaccine. So, you know, RSV and flu are really competitive markets. And so the question is, you know, are they offering something better? Are the side effects worse for their vaccine? Vaccine, you know, how do they convince people that they should choose their mRNA vaccine over, you know, what already, you know, we're all familiar with? Right. And you spoke with Moderna's CEO. I mean, does he like the progress that he's seeing? He definitely does. And, you know, I think what they're trying to pitch to investors right now is that they're really transforming, you know, and you know, that they have a very full pipeline and that they're not going to be just a one product company. In fact, they have a platform that is delivering um, each of their phase threes has been successful. So I have to give them credit for that. Um, and they are going to be active in three areas, infectious diseases, cancer, and then rare diseases, which, you know, that's a little further in the distance when we'll start to see products coming out of that. Um, so, you know, I think he's basically trying to convince everyone to be patient, to, you know, that it's going to cost them some money to get these things to market. Um, you know, I think just the question is, you know, how they adjust to a different reality than they've faced during COVID when it comes to marketing their products and showing that they have something that is better. Now, let's get into that money. So as Moderna moves into other infectious diseases that you were just talking about, it's facing a lot of competition, right? And they've been putting a lot of money into late stage clinical studies. Can the payoff of its transformation justify the cost? That really is the key question that they need to answer. I mean, they think yes, obviously. Um, I think they're going to be putting they said $25 billion in R&D um, between 2024 and 2028. That puts them in the same league just below Gilead Sciences, which obviously has been around for a lot longer and has a lot more um, successful products on the market. Um, and so, you know, I think what they need to prove is that they can be the kind of marketing powerhouse that they're going to need to be to get these products out there and convince people that they're worthwhile. Um, you know, that there really is going to be demand for, say, a vaccine that combines COVID and flu. To me, that's the most unique thing that they've got going for them. And then I think last is their cancer vaccine. Um, that could potentially be on the market by 2025. Um, there's a lot of excitement around that. The, you know, kind of other issue they have is that right now it's very expensive to make these products. And so they need to get down, you know, that cost um, so that, yeah, that even if they are making, you know, a lot of money off of these vaccines that, you know, there's actually a profit there. All right, let's get to the funding, because it, it really depends on the continuing sales of the vaccine. I mean, is the, the, the is the demand strong enough for the vaccine? 
they have no choice but to rely on Americans wanting Americans and people around the world wanting to roll up their sleeves for this new booster that um, you know has recently become available. Um, this updated shot um, to XBB. You know, we know that last year only 17% of people in the U U.S. opted to get that um, that shot. Um, and so I think their hope is this is the first year that we're in an actual commercial market. Um, they're the ones who are trying to get out there and get the word out that they've got this vaccine. It's not the government that's providing it. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think there's some skepticism that, you know, their projections for how many people are gonna, are willing to get their shot of, you know, will be matched with the reality of some of the hesitancy that's out there around, you know, whether people feel like they need a COVID vaccine or not. Okay, now you mentioned some of these, but let's kind of break it down a little bit. Talk about the other vaccines in development. Let's start with Moderna's RSV vaccine. Yeah, so that vaccine, you know, it's a good product. It's a year behind. This is their problem. It's a year behind um, vaccines that um, recently became available from Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, they need to play catch up. What they're trying to sell as being differentiated is that they're offering the vaccine in a preloaded pen. So the other two products come in a vial and the pharmacist has to mix it. And they're arguing like, well, in a busy pharmacy environment, we know everybody, you know, is experiencing shortages of, you know, healthcare workers. Um, having this preloaded pen is going to be attractive. Um, their flu vaccine, you know, had been struggling a little bit. They came out, this was the other big news, they came out with, you know, good phase three data on that um, last week. The question is, you know, the side effect profile, all of us who've gotten a COVID shot, you know, an mRNA shot know that the side effects can be a little rough. Um, you know, will people decide that something that's as good as what's there is enough? And I think what they need to prove is that what they have is something better, like that, you know, it does better, performs better than um, the other flu vaccines that are out there. Right now, we only have antibody data on that, but having some actual like outcomes data, you know, do people, do more people live? <laughs> you know, do fewer people get the flu or have a severe case? That would be really helpful for them. And then they have this vaccine that they're working on where they're going to combine COVID in the flu. That vaccine incorporates a next generation COVID vaccine they've been working on that um, they hope will they'll be able to give people a smaller dose of and it'll work better than what we have now. So, you know, again, I think the question is, what does demand look like in a year or two or three years? Because we don't really know how the pandemic or, you know, the, the, the kind of virus will start to, um, you know, affect people if, in, in coming years. So those are their main products. And then, as I mentioned, this cancer vaccine is the other one that everyone's really excited about. Yeah. And what about the, those ambitions? I mean, what does the CEO say it's going to take to get FDA approval? This has been the question on investors' minds. I mean, so many people have been just clamoring for information. When are they going to file for approval? I think they had really good data that came out on this cancer vaccine um, showing that it could reduce the risk of um, skin cancers, a certain kind of skin cancer from returning or from people dying by 44%, you know, and so a lot of investors think, oh, that should be enough for you to file for approval. Um, the CEO, you know, says three things need to happen. You know, one, they have to start a phase three trial, which they've done. You know, two, they are going to have some data later this year um, that will kind of show 
um, over a longer time horizon, how, whether those numbers hold up or if maybe they even get a little better um, in terms of how well that vaccine performs. And then three, these are highly personalized products. Um, they take they use a patient's own tumor cells um, to, to create the vaccine. And so that's very complicated from a manufacturing perspective. And they're trying to get all of that in place because I do think legitimately um, his pushback on filing for approval now is like, well, we could do that, but we couldn't actually treat everybody who's going to want the, the product. Right. And the company recently said it's well on the way to becoming a big biotech contender. What's your take? If they can move their technology a little beyond where COVID was, I mean, they showed that mRNA works. If they can show it works as a therapeutic, if this cancer vaccine, you know, um, continues to progress in the way we'd like to see it progress and help people, that will, you know, certainly show that it's not just like as good as the existing technology that's out there and that it could be really transformative. But you know, they've got some work on that. <laughs> we have to be patient and see what happens. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis there. The Federal Reserve was in focus this week when Fed Chair Jay Powell held rates unchanged, but signaled they'll be higher for longer. We're prepared to raise rates further if appropriate, and we intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we're confident that inflation is moving down sustainably toward our objective. In addition to bringing down inflation, he clearly laid out the Fed's objective. A soft landing is a primary objective, and I did not say otherwise. I mean, that's that's what we've been trying to achieve. Powell's had success in bringing down inflation this year, and the stock markets had a strong 2023. But many Americans are downbeat about the economy. Economist Claudia Sam joins us to explain why. Inflation rates falling back toward more normal levels. We have the labor market. It's strong. It sounds like a good reason to be optimistic about the economy, right? But you're saying Americans are still gloomy. This is what you put in your opinion piece. Now, how bad is sentiment? Put it into perspective for us. Well, first of all, it is absolutely appropriate and understandable that people are gloomy. Right? Inflation is high. Yes, the labor market is good. But infl inflation has been high, and it's been high too long. So then the question is, in some of the, the measures that we normally use to gauge overall sentiment like across all people across the country, these have been really low, like lower than you would historically have happened, even if you take inflation into account, right? So this isn't saying people are overreacting to inflation. It's just saying they're reacting to inflation and then there's more, right? And what's particularly notable about this, I mean, these are these sentiment go back to the 1948, right? So this is a long period of time to watch how people their views about the economy change over time. And what's notable and what I write about is the fact that this gap, this unexpected gloom, extra gloom, it showed up about the same time the pandemic did. So we've had this for multiple years now, and we haven't made up that lost ground. Now, dig into these consumer confidence surveys that we hear about. What do they ask people? There's a few different surveys, and they ask, you know, the questions vary a little bit, but in general, they're asking people, how are you doing? Often the survey that I look at comes out of the University of Michigan. So it's like, how are you doing relative to a year ago? Is it a good time to go by? And then forward-looking questions. How are your finances going to do in the next year? Get better, get worse? And then how do you think more the economy as a whole, how businesses are going to do in the next year, the next five years? So it's, it's a wide range of views about the economy and not surprisingly, every single one of these measures plummeted in the COVID recession. 
Right? That's what they do in recessions. What has happened is though they have recovered as economic conditions have improved, inflation is coming down, the labor market's been good, there's still this gap. And it's mm -hmm. one that going back decades and decades, we don't, we don't see this. Right. right. And so that's where it raises the question of and and to me, what's important as an uh, when I do my work as an economist is not to say, oh, well, you people cheer up. It's to figure <laughs> out, well, what is what is I have peers that do that, uh, <laughs> that you you try to figure out what are people trying to tell us? Because when you have a pattern that's so at odds with what you've seen in the past, there's a reason. There are lots of different possible explanations, so I don't pretend that I know the answer. And yet I know having worked with these data for well over a decade at the Federal Reserve, these can be very useful in helping us gauge the economy. All right, so let's dig into why this sentiment has really failed to rebound. Now you say the less talked about but more likely explanation is COVID. The timing, first of all, is somewhat obvious on some level. Uh, but when I say COVID, it's it's not just the virus itself, people who uh, passed away from the virus and have long COVID. It's also thinking about the way our daily life was upended, the way our institutions changed. I think at this point, it's, it's you know, no one wants to remember back to March of 2020. Remember, we shut the U.S. economy down. We sent everyone home to a large extent that was a huge change in people's lives and a huge change in how in their livelihoods right and one thing that i argue in the is that you know we we're just now seeing the you know the supply chains start to get back on track right like in this these were also very disrupted in 2020 we are in 2023 but they're just kind of getting people take a long time to get back on track too Right. So the idea that we still have something that we're holding with us, even if it's not on our mind every day, that's really impacted our lives, to me, that's a very plausible explanation that we're just carrying along extra um, effects of the pandemic. And there were some places in the same survey where we, like income expectations, I mean, not in this main measure that showed some after effects of the Great Recession for a few years, and then it pop back up. So this big events can have effects like this. Of course, it's hard to prove that definitively. Right. And then there's also politics can play a role in this. I mean, we're coming up on election year. One of the fascinating uh, and maybe not surprising aspects in the survey, they have for, for some time now, not all the way back, but for some time, asked people about their political affiliation. And what you can see in the data are these views about the economy, own finances, future, they are very much tied with, is the is your party in the White House, right? And then when, so you'll see this big divide, right now, um, you know, Democrats are much more upbeat about, you know, they have much higher sentiment than Republicans, but under President Trump, that was reversed. And in the last two election cycles, these are these are big gaps. Now, for the overall sentiment, that's what I'm looking at, and I argue why this is unlikely to be an explanation, is they're about the same size and magnitude. They're just flipping around. And the split in the population is pretty similar. So it's unlikely to tell us why we have this extra gap now. It is informative in thinking about how divergent the views are that we have at any one point in time about the economy. 
Right. And then on top of that, we have negative economic news story. The things people hear, you know, as as they're listening and, and watching TV and, and doing all that, what seems that actually seems to be reversing a little bit, but it still has an impact, correct? The survey, and I think this is really helpful because you can do a lot of let's measure the media, let's put it on some kind of positive, negative scale. And yet you don't really like what are people listening to? Right. Like that, that's where it um, what kind of gets in, gets in the head. So the survey asked people about the economy. What what economic news have you heard lately? And they will. Is this positive? Is this negative? They ask about specifically what is this? And it again, just like with sentiment overall, we would expect it to be negative, you know, more negative than before COVID, just because inflation is high and there are problems in the economy that weren't with us before COVID. And um, but the the news media, uh, this balance between positive news and negative news has rebounded more. It's not back to before COVID levels. And it's also moved a lot more with the um, economic conditions. So it, it it's a little harder to gauge with this one. But when you look at these responses from households about what they're hearing, it's not it doesn't line up in the same way as when you ask them, what do you think about the economy? in terms of the gloominess. So there there could be a piece of it, but it's not uh, it's not that it noted like there there's not a sign of a clear bias in what people say they have heard that's setting aside what's out there in the news. Got it. Now based on all that we've talked about, is the data still useful? Yes. Uh, we have to there there are many uh, relationships that in terms of the economy, in terms of the kind of data that economists look to that have broken down in this pandemic. So sentiment does not stand out in that regard. I, There is an argument that has been made that's like, well, if you look, you know, we ask people and they're very gloomy, but if you look at consumers, they're spending, they're out there, and we should just look at their behavior and, you know, who knows why they're saying what they're saying. I, I disagree with that. I think, you know, again, people can tell us something that the regular data can't, and, and we don't have complete data on what they're spending and all of that. So I think there's an important trying to figure out what people are telling us. And it has been the case in the past, and this is difficult given the, the break in the series or how the data has been acting, but the sentiment data in the past have been helpful in seeing a little bit around the corner in terms of a recession coming mm-hmm. or a contraction. So potentially we can still get some signs from that. Claudia Sam, thanks for joining us. Coming up, why most corn grown doesn't end up on our plates. Bloomberg's Laura Williams has a look into farming's climate-friendly future. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Lisa Mateo. What lies ahead for the future of farming? Bloomberg Opinion's Laura Williams joined in to talk about a problem with our global food systems. Laura, thank you for joining me. You start off your Bloomberg Opinion piece about farming's climate-friendly future by really setting the scene. Now, you say how our global food systems have become incredibly dysfunctional. What exactly do you mean by that? So what I mean is that 
loads of really healthy produce is getting diverted away from people's plates. So if you imagine a big American cornfield, I naively thought that lots of that food would end up on people's plates. But actually, 39% ends up being fed to livestock. 37% is uh, used to produce ethanol for fuel. Um, 14% is exported. And then it's just 10% um, of the corn which is eaten. And then half of that is a sweetener. So like high fructose corn syrup. So that's not a healthy way of eating. And it's also, so this isn't, this isn't working for us. More than 820 million people lack sufficient food. Um, unhealthy diets now pose a greater risk of morbidity and mortality than unsafe sex, alcohol, drug, and tobacco use combined. And so it's not good for human health, but it's also not good for the, for the planet. Um, food production contributes about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's uh, the way that we use pesticides and fertilizer and change, have changed the use of the lands, have facilitated catastrophic declines in biodiversity. It really draws on um, fresh water, like uses 70% of the fresh water available uh, worldwide. And, you know, as the global population grows, it just at the moment seems like it's only going to get worse. So let's dig into this new study. It was published in the scientific journal PLOS Climate. Now, this looks into several elements that can combine to help reduce emissions. Diet shift, waste reduction, those are really a big focus of this. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the important thing to take away from this is the study was really about how to pull all the levers we have to create something that works much better. And actually, you know, food production is one of the only industries where we could get to net negative emissions. So it's drawing down more carbon dioxide than it's emitting into the atmosphere. And that's a that could be a really, really powerful thing moving forward in, you know, helping offset other polluting industries um, and kind of, you know, cleaning up the mess that we've made up there. Okay, there's the importance also production efficiency and technology too. Yeah, so basically, if you take a look at the non-tech interventions, and that's, so that sounds like adopting a healthier, flexitarian diet where you eat mainly plant-based foods and you can have still a little meat, um, and reducing food waste, that could half global food emissions. So that would be a massive progress, but it can't actually take us to net zero because if we're producing food, we're producing emissions at the moment. So if we improve production efficiency, and so that is uh, reducing the gap between what agricultural areas can deliver and what's produced, if we close that gap, all our fields are as productive as they can be then also use these novel technologies. And so that can be things like, you know, helping reduce emissions further by there's food additives you can give to cows to stop them um, burping up methane. There's also technology you can use to help farmland absorb atmospheric CO2. And if you use all four of these things together, you can you can reach neg- negative emissions. But the, the trick is the, the second two, using those novel technologies will really help us take it to the negative and net zero zone. Easier said than done. What challenges still exist for this? One important factor is that lots of these novel technologies are novel. They're really new. And so there's lots of knowledge gaps we need to address. We need to know about how much these things are going to cost. We need to know if they work at the huge scale that they'll need to. There's also obviously going to be, you know, challenges in actually even you know, convincing enough people to adopt a more flexitarian diet because there's lots of personal and cultural reasons behind 
diet choices people make. There's challenges in every kind of zone, which is why we kind of need to use each of the four kind of methods to remove carbon from the food production, because we'll get the max benefits without putting all our eggs in one basket. Bloomberg Opinion's Laura Williams there. Well, that does it for this week's opinion. We're produced by Eric Malo. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.